If you've got a Bible, you can open to 1 Peter chapter 1, is where we're going to be this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're launching a new series this morning entitled Sojourners, looking through the book of 1 Peter over the course of the next several months together. And I want to give you a little snapshot as to why I believe this is a very um, pertinent time for us to dig into the truths and message of 1 Peter in the life of not only our church, but the church in America in our day and time. And here's why. Really, over the last 300 years, okay, in the, nation, in, our, in the history of our nation's existence, America has been an anomaly on the radar screen of human history. It's been an anomaly. It has not been the norm. It's been an anomaly. That's what we mean by an anomaly. It has not been the customary way. Ooh. That, are we good? It has not been the customary way things have gone in most nations around the globe over the course of human history. Over the course of the last 300 years, there has been a sense in which the American superficial surface culture has been somewhat Christianized, where the support structures of the educational system, perhaps the values, the, the trending values of our culture have been supportive of kind of biblical norms and biblical worldviews and biblical approaches to particular issues in life. It's been an anomaly because throughout human history, that has not been the way things are between a, the church and the nation in which it finds itself situated. America has been an anomaly on the radar screen of history over the course of the last 300 years, where the larger cultural norms and values support the structures and prop up the surface level Christianized culture. The culture itself wasn't Christian. Listen, those of you who have the, the kind of myth of a Christian nation in your mind, when you think of America, the culture itself was not Christian. Because even though you can legislate and create certain laws that would restrain moral evil in people's lives, no amount of law or legislation can change the hearts of people. You can create laws that will restrain moral evil from being practiced in a particular way, in a particular place, in a particular time. But you cannot, by any external law or legislation, change the motivational structures of someone's heart. So at the surface level, our nation may have been a Christianized culture, but we were not a nation full of Christians. The last 300 years has been an anomaly on the radar screen of history. And for those of us who are kind of at, at this pivotal point in our nation's history, whenever the cultural winds have begun to shift, because as if you have to be, have your head in the, in the sand and be somewhat naive to think that over the last 15 years, the winds have not picked up force. And the pace of change in our culture has not accelerated to such a degree that what we are headed toward and where we perhaps are now is at a pivotal point in human history, in the, nation of, uh, in the history of our nation, in which those cultural winds have shifted and the surface-level Christianized culture in which we once existed is beginning to quickly disappear. It's beginning quickly to evaporate. See, I would liken it to, it's similar to like, uh, 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 please go with me on this, okay? Um, but if, if you think of, of the way that the church has kind of been in bed with the culture over the course of the last 300 years in American history, it's similar to kind of a lap dog in the home of a very wealthy patron, 
Okay? And that lap dog in the home of that very wealthy patron got petted whenever it wanted to, just kind of jumped up on the lap, and they petted it a little bit. Right? And it had one of those little bowls of water that were like never ending. So you go up and just kind of, you know, you know, there's like a computer sensor that knows when the dog's coming. So there's fresh filtered water coming out of the tap into the bowl, and the dog kind of laps it up a little bit. Right? It's got all the dent of bones it could possibly imagine, and it gets scraps from the table whenever things are left over, kind of thrown in the bowl, and it kind of eats its fill. It's always got two square meals a day waiting for it in the morning and the evening, and all of its medications are provided. And that dog has been in the home of that wealthy patron over the course of the last 300 years until that wealthy patron finally decided that that dog was a little bit of an inconvenience to its lifestyle. I can't do everything that I want to do with this dog in my lap. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to put it in the car. I'm going to drive it out into the country. I'm going to drop it off somewhere to kind of fend for itself. To fend for itself. And where I think we are as those cultural winds begin to shift in our nation is that we are at the point now where we're in the back seat with our head hanging out the window trying to figure out where this ride's going to stop because we don't know just yet. We don't know. We don't know how fast and how strong those winds are going to blow. So we don't know where this is going to end, but we can begin to see that it's heading in a different direction than what we have been accustomed to. And for us, it seems strange. Those of us who have woken up to this new world, it seems a little bit strange because all we've ever known has been an anomaly. Listen, the last 300 years on the course and the radar of human history has been strange. Not what we're facing now. What we're facing now has been the norm for the church throughout its history, apart from these 300 years in American culture. And I think Peter's going to tell us that. And Peter's not only going to tell us that, but I think he's also going to arm us with how we should respond in the midst of these gale force winds that appear to be blowing and battering and shifting the course of where culture is headed for us. Peter's going to arm us with truths that we need to respond. Because listen, the lubricating oil, essentially, of American civil and folk religion is drying up. And anytime you have a piston firing in a cylinder without any oil, right? What happens? A whole lot of heat and friction that's going to cause it to seize. And that's where we sit right now, I believe, as a church in this nation is that we sit in a moment where that lubricating oil of American civil religion, that lubricating oil of American folk religion has begun to dry up, and there's all this heat that's beginning to be generated because there's no longer any lubrication for that. Where our norms and our, our customs and our values and our vision of what life should be and our worldview is beginning to be placed on the back burner. It's in the back seat being driven out into the country to be left to fend for itself, and we're not sure where that ride's gonna stop. All we know is it's getting really hot. It's getting really hot. So how is it that we respond to this? And this is where Peter is so pivotal for us. It's so pivotal for us. Because what Peter's going to do, he's going to teach us about how to live in a time in which the winds have shifted from the anomaly to the normal experience of Christians throughout history. And this is what I want us to see together as a church because I feel like what I, a part of God's calling and task in my life is to help us be better prepared to respond to what seems to be coming on the horizon. And so that's what we aim to do from now through Easter. 
is to spend significant time in this book unpacking its truths, understanding how it is that we should respond in a time and a season in our, in our nation's history in which the winds have shifted and they are blowing strongly. They are blowing strongly. See, Peter, from the very outset of his letter, is aiming to arm Christians who, are in his day and time, they're on the threshold of what we might call state-sponsored persecution where things are going to get really hot, really fast for Peter's audience. And he arms them with the necessary truths that they need to live faithfully as followers of Jesus in the days ahead. Now listen, I'm not the guy who's going to tell you to go move out into the country and buy a bunch of ammunition and canned beans. Okay, That's not what I'm going to tell you to do. I don't think that's what Peter tells us to do. He doesn't say withdraw from the culture and live in isolation, nor does he say accommodate to it. But he says something very different. I think we're going to find that beginning this morning. Beginning this morning. Because Peter doesn't start his book with a bunch of tactics or strategies. He doesn't say, listen, you need to contact this lawyer. You need to hold this rally. You need to petition for these laws. That's not what Peter says. Peter says something very different. He doesn't start with tactics and strategies. He starts with theology and truth. So I want to hear, I want you to hear what Peter has to say this morning and it's from the very outset of his letter about how it is that the church should live in a day and time in which the cultural winds have shifted from what has been an anomaly in human history to what has been the normal experience for the church throughout her history. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read down through verse 2 and that's where we're going to stop this morning. And unpack it together. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes these words in verse 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I think Peter, in the very greeting that he issues to these Christians, to his audience in his day and time, I think in the very greeting that he issues, he begins to give us indications as far as how we are to respond as Christians in the midst of a hostile culture. How do we begin to prepare for this fire that's coming from the heat created between the friction from our convictions and the prevailing winds in our culture? And Peter says, again, you don't start with tactics or strategies. You start with theology because Peter says, if you want to prepare for what's coming, if you want to prepare for what you're facing now and what's coming in the future, you have to come to terms with who you are. You have to come to terms with who you are and embrace your identity. Listen to what Peter tells us. He says you've got to come to terms with who you are and embrace your identity because Peter says you have a distinct identity as a Christian. And that identity, he says, Christians are sojourners. They are exiles. They are aliens. Essentially, they are refugees. That's how Peter defines Christians. He defines them as sojourners or exiles. Sojourners are people who are living outside their home country. They don't currently reside in the place of their citizenship. They live outside of their home country. 
In fact, the word that Peter uses here to describe the identity of the Christians that he's writing to and Christians throughout all times, in all places, at all points in human history, the word that he uses is more akin to our term of resident aliens. They're resident aliens. Okay, what does it mean to be a resident alien? Let me tell you what at first it, what it doesn't mean. To be a resident alien means that you're not a citizen who shares all the values and engages in all the practices and customs of the culture in which you find yourself. To be a resident alien means you don't embrace and adopt everything that you see going on around you. To be a resident alien means you don't just kind of get blown along with the winds as they shift in the culture in which you reside. So you're not a citizen of that country. right? Your citizenship is somewhere else. In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship isn't here on the earth, but it's in heaven. So we're resident aliens here on the earth. We're not citizens of this particular country. We're citizens of another country, a greater country. So you're not citizens of the culture in which you live or the country in which you live, but also, he says, you're not tourists. That idea of a resident alien means you're not a citizen of that country, but you're also not a tourist. Now, you're not a tourist because you don't just kind of disengage from the culture and just kind of observe everything that's going on, walking around taking selfies with your cell phone camera of all the experiences that you have and posting them out there somewhere on social media. So you're not a tourist who's just kind of consuming experiences in that particular culture, nor are you a citizen who adopts all the practice, values, and customs of that culture, but you're a resident alien. You're someone who currently resides in a particular country on a passport, on a green card. So you live there. You may even hold on a job there. You may even engage in the community there and do good to others there. But it's not your home. It's not your home. And that's how Peter describes Christians. He describes them as resident aliens, people who recognize that this world is not our home. This world is not heaven. There's something that's lacking here. And they're longing for something better and more than what they can experience and see here. They don't embrace all the cultural customs, values, and practices, nor do they just kind of go around observing and having experiences. They live within a particular culture on a green card until the time in which they go home. But while they're there, they're contributing members to that society or to that country. They care about things that are happening there. Because that's where they live, even though they don't belong there. It's that delicate balance that Peter strikes when he describes our identity. And if we are going to not only survive, but thrive in the midst of the cultural shifts that we're currently experiencing, we've got to come to terms with who we are. We've got to come to terms with our identity. Now notice how Peter says they came to that identity. He says that they are not just exiles, but they are elect exiles. In other words, they were chosen to be exiles. They were elected by God to be in this particular status, in this particular time, in this particular place. Now, what Peter's referring to here is the doctrine of election that basically says we don't choose to become exiles, but we're chosen to become exiles. And the doctrine of election is all across the pages of Scripture. I want to give you one other place that it shows up. And it shows up in, in places where it's not necessarily like Peter here doesn't stop and expound and teach on the doctrine of election. He assumes it. He assumes it. So does Paul in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, where he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, he says, we know that God chose you. We know that God has elected you because in time, in, in time and space you came to believe. So when the gospel came to you, it wasn't just like somebody was talking to you about any other subject that they were lecturing on in a school or in a classroom. But whenever the gospel was preached to you, something happened and it hit you in a particular way. And he says, that's how you know God has chosen you. Because when the gospel came, it hits you. The doctrine of election is all over Scripture. And they became exiles, Peter says, not because of their choice in time and space to become exiles, but because of God's choice in eternity before the foundations of the world. That he chose them. And we're going to see that more here in a little bit. So God has chosen you if you're a Christian in the room this morning and the gospel has hit you at some point in your life and it came with conviction that you indeed were in sin and that indeed you needed a Savior and Jesus was the only one who could save you and rescue you from Satan's sin and death, then you are an exile. You're a resident alien. This is not your home. Have you embraced that? Have you embraced that identity? Let me give you three ways you can know whether or not you've really embraced that identity. And the first one is this. One way that you know you've embraced your identity as a resident alien is by considering the primary way you see yourself. What is the primary lens through which you look at your life? What is the primary way you understand yourself? What symbol do you most identify with? Is it the cross? As one who's died to self and been raised to walk in this new kind of life, following after Jesus, laying your life down, is it the cross or is it an elephant or a donkey? We're about to enter into an election cycle, and there's all kinds of candidates on all kinds of platforms across every major network on cable or dish or over the air. They're all over the place, and they're platforming, and they're candidating. And there are some within the church, and this is where I think this is so helpful even, that the winds have shifted in our culture to where the, the, we, we are. We're in the back seat trying to figure out where this ride's going to end. Because in that American Christianized culture, the gospel got assumed or it got muddied or confused with politics or ethics. Not good news of God rescuing sinners from death and saving them for his glory for all of eternity. Listen, what's the primary symbol that you identify with? Is it the cross, or is it a particular party, Republican or Democrat, donkey or elephant, red or blue? What's the primary way that you identify yourself? Do you first see yourself as a Christian who happens to be white or black or some other race or nationality? Or do you primarily see yourself through the lens of your race, your ethnicity and nationality who happens then to be a Christian? See, in more traditional Eastern cultures, and some of you are from those cultures, listen, the, the biggest way, the most primary way you identified yourself was by your nationality or by your family, by your blood, by your ethnicity. But do you see yourself as this particular ethnicity who happens to be a Christian or as a Christian, an exile, a resident alien who happens to be this particular nationality or ethnicity? In the Western cultures, in which most of us were born and raised and reared, we don't necessarily identify ourselves primarily necessarily by our families, but by our vocations. 
So we're a lawyer, or we're an artist, or we're a teacher. See, do you primarily see yourself as a lawyer, artist, and a teacher who happens to be a Christian, or as a Christian who happens to be a lawyer, artist, or a teacher? What's the primary way in which you view yourself? Do you see yourself as a Christian who happens to be an American, or as an American who happens to be a Christian? One of the ways that you know whether or not you've really embraced your identity as a resident alien is how you primarily see yourself. Second way, second way, another way you can know if you've embraced this identity as a resident alien is by the degree of satisfaction you find in the things of this world. How satisfied are you in the things of this world? C.S. Lewis, I think an incredible quote, he says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find within myself desires that no experience, no relationship in this world is able to satisfy and fill, then the only logical explanation, he says, is that there is something more that I was made for. I was made for another world. I belong to another world. I have another home, he says. So let me ask you a question. Is, is, there, is there a temporal meal for every appetite of your soul? In other words, is there something that you're able to find in this life that satisfies every desire and every longing that you have in your heart? If there is, either you've never become a resident alien or you've never embraced the fact that you are because you keep trying to find something that will satisfy that ache, that longing, that hurt in your heart because you have not yet fully embraced the fact that you are made for another world that this is not your home. Even the good, enjoyable things, right? Even the good, enjoyable things. When you look at the good, enjoyable things in your life, right? most of us who come from a dysfunctional family, we go, yes, I realize there's something better than that. <laughs> I've seen it. But for those of us who come from a loving family that's nurturing and, very fun and, and has its issues, but predominantly functional, right? do you think your family is everything? For some of us, family is everything to us. We believe they're going to fulfill every desire, every longing, satisfy every hurt and ache of our hearts. Have you, have you really come to terms with who you are and embraced that identity? See, it's only those who look at even the good and enjoyable things and, and kind of like you too, they say, man, of all the experiences and all the relationships, even the best ones on the scales, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's still something more that my heart is longing for. I realize I wasn't made for this world. And thirdly, the final way you can determine whether or not you've really embraced this identity as a resident alien is if, by how you're responding to the cultural winds around us. Listen, this one's so important. This is so vital. Because Jesus, who is a king, whose kingdom is upside down in this world, in this age, in this time, in the coming age, it will be right side up as he rules and reigns for all of eternity and puts all his enemies under his feet. But in this age, it's upside down where he doesn't necessarily exercise his kingly authority to crush everyone now, but really he comes under them and serves them. How are you responding to the shift in the cultural winds around us? 
This is one way to know whether or not you've embraced your identity as a resident alien. Those who have never come to terms with their identity as a resident alien and they see themselves first as Americans and second as Christians are speaking, but they're speaking from hearts filled with bitterness and self-pity. So they're feeling sorry for themselves because of the way things are happening around them that makes things uncomfortable for them. And their hearts tend to be filled with bitterness and angst about what's taking place because it's threatening their lifestyle or their comfort. But, but those, those who have seen themselves and their identity as resident aliens, they speak from a heart of brokenness and compassion. Do they still see the things that are happening in the cultural winds as they shift? Absolutely, they see them. But as opposed to being bitter about them because it's infringing upon their comforts and their lifestyle, they are broken because they see the direction. They speak with a heart filled with brokenness and not bitterness, not yelling hate speech at other people, but rather saying, there's a better way. There's a better way. One of the ways to know you, if you've embraced this identity is to see how you're responding. Are the cultural winds shifting? Are they just threatening to take away your comfort and your lifestyle? Or does it grieve your heart and are you broken for people who are headed down a path that will lead to their destruction? Peter says, if you're going to make it, you've got to come to terms with who you are. This world, this culture, this nation is not your home, your ultimate home. Now notice, Peter says there's, there's more to it than this, right? He says there's an actual, the reason God has, has chosen you, the reason that he has marked you out as exiles, the reason that you're resident aliens in this world, he says at the very end of verse, or toward the end of verse 2, he says it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the aim, that's the aim. He's, he's, he's elected you as exiles to live as resident aliens with the aim or the result or the end that you would be obedient to Jesus, that you would be obedient to his son. We're chosen for obedience, he says. We're chosen to be a people who we sang earlier, glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We're chosen to be a people who not only declare that with our lips, but we bend our knees before Jesus and Jesus alone. That we are faithful to Jesus. We submit to Jesus. We love Jesus. And we bend our knee to him and no other. So that no other president, no other prefect, no other king, no other magistrate, no other judge do we bend our knee before and allow them to dictate the convictions of our conscience. But rather we submit ourselves to King Jesus in obedience to him. And he says, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, that's kind of strange language for us. Let's go back into the Old Testament and see where that comes from because I think it gives us some, some, some insight onto what Peter is saying here. If you go back into Exodus 24, 7 to 8, after God has crushed Pharaoh, brought Israel out of Egypt, they crossed over into, into uh, to, to Mount Sinai, and they're there and they've received the law. They're up on the mountain. They receive the law. Moses comes down to the people and he slays a bull and he covers the altar with a portion of the blood. The other portion of the blood he puts in a basin. And then in Exodus 24, 7 to 8, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant, the law God had given up on the mountain, and he read it to the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. There's that obedience piece. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, 
Moses has the people gathered around the base of Sinai, have gone up and received the law, come down, initiated a sacrifice, filled the basin with a portion of the blood, sprinkled a portion on the altar, then sprinkled some on the people to say, you are God's covenant people. You are God's covenant people who are bound to obey him and submit to him, to his authority, to his rule. And then Peter comes to say that you were chosen by God, chosen by God for this obedience to Jesus, to live lives that are submitted to King Jesus and to live as his covenant people, the new covenant not bought with the blood of bulls, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was sprinkled upon you and marked you out as God's covenant people. And listen, whenever you and I come to terms with who we are, that we are exiles, we're resident aliens in this world, this is not our home, and we begin to live as those whose knees are being bent to King Jesus and who are marked out as his covenant people, as the blood of Christ is sprinkled upon us and we're identified as his and his alone. Listen, when you live that way, it begins to create a contrast. There's a contrast that's created in this world between those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. Listen, some of you men, right, you're, you're, you're all amped up right now, okay? Why are you all amped up? Because you're about to spend about four months in the woods, okay? Some of you men are getting ready right now to take trips to different places around the country or perhaps here locally in Texas, and you're going to go spend about four or five months in the woods. We're not going to see you, okay, come like November, from November through uh, January. We won't see you, okay? You're going to be out in the woods hunting stuff, whatever it is that crawls or flies, Right? You're going to kill something and clean it and dress it and eat it and mount it on your wall. Right? So you're going to go out in the woods and you're going to hunt. And listen, whenever you go out into the woods to hunt, what do you do? You put on camouflage whenever you get into the blind so that you can blend into your surroundings. But on the way to and from the blind, if you're smart, you don't just walk through the woods in camo. You walk through the woods in the, the brightest orange you can possibly find. So that other hunters know you're not a part of the native species that they're trying to target and you don't get lit up with a bullet or an arrow. Right? And so there's a contrast that's created between that blazing orange, that hunter's orange, they call it, and all of the underbrush and all of the trees surrounding you. And Peter says, when you're marked out and chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ, there is a distinctiveness about your life that creates a contrast to the world around you to the native culture around you so that you stand out. You don't stand up against an oak tree with real tree camo on just trying to blend in and embracing the customs and practices of the world. But there's a contrast that's created by your life that allows people to see there's something different about this one. But we've got to be very careful because the way in which you seek to create that contrast says a lot about the condition of your heart. See, there are some who want to try and create that contrast by being as offensive as they possibly can be and saying things that are as, in the most, saying the most offensive things in the most offensive ways. They're trying to create a contrast that way. And then there are others who are trying to create a contrast by never being offensive. Right? Just love and accept people. So you got some on one side of the fence who are trying to create the contrast by being as offensive as they possibly can, and some on the other side of the fence trying to be, create the contrast by being 
never, never being offensive. But I think if you listen to the words of Jesus himself, if we're marked out for obedience to him, then there's a courage and a compassion with which you act that creates a contrast both by being offensive and by being attractive. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 16. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's an offense about those who bend their knees to King Jesus and say, We have no other king. There's an offensiveness about their lives because their values and their practices are running against the grain of the cultural winds. But notice what Jesus goes on immediately to say in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 13. But you are the salt of the earth, and if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, whenever you live in submission, when you bend your knee and say, we have no other king but Jesus, there's going to be an offensiveness about your life that's going to draw persecution, and there's going to be an attractiveness about your life that's going to draw people God's going to use to draw to conversion so that we give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's going to be a both and, not either or kinds of contrast created in your life. And listen, if you're only offensive in pushing people away, it's because there is no compassion in your heart for their condition. But if you're only attractive and kind of drawing people in without any kind of clear delineation of what your convictions are, then you really just lack courage to speak them. Jesus himself says there's going to be an offensiveness and attractiveness about your life that's going to create a contrast. Because listen, the world is used to seeing, and you can blend in very easily with all the hate mongers if all you are is offensive. And you can blend in very easily with everyone who's just kind of willy-nilly, would tolerate everything. There's no boundaries. There's no clear parameters. You can blend in real easily with that, but there's a contrast created when people see you, disagree with them fundamentally in their convictions, and yet at the same time move toward them in love and compassion. And you don't speak to them as if you're speaking down to them, but you speak to them as if you're another sinner who's saved by grace. There is an offensiveness and attractiveness when you live as God's new covenant people that are marked out by his blood. And you live in obedience to Jesus. Now, what, what else does Peter tell us? If you go back just before that, he says, not only are you saved for or chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ, but through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And this is so vital because there's two ways that people will seek to aim to create that kind of contrast by living in obedience to Jesus. And the first one is this. There are some who want to try and create that contrast by being a Pharisee. In other words, I, I can keep all the rules. I can keep all the commandments. I can do everything that makes, I can do everything that I can possibly can do to make myself acceptable. So it's very pharisaical in essence. And churches throughout American history have been filled with 
Lots of law-keeping Pharisees. But notice what, Jesus, or what Peter says. He says, you don't, you're not, you don't come to obedience through Jesus Christ because you bent your will in order to kind of rise to the top of the pack and to climb the mountain and be the person on the top. He says, no, it's through, by the means, the agency of the Holy Spirit who brings about change in your life. He, first of all, positionally sets you off and consecrates you as God's child. Like he did in the Old Testament whenever the, they set apart certain utensils for use in the temple. They set apart certain people for purposes that God had for them. They're consecrated, sanctified, set apart. But not only positionally does he set you apart, but practically he begins to set you apart through your actions. As he progressively changes your character and he begins to birth new desires within you. So you're not acting out of pride, right, to ascend the top of the mountain, but you're acting out of humility because the Spirit's changing your heart. He's changing the desires that are there. And so when the desires change, there's new actions that come out. But they don't come out in a very prideful way, but a very humble way. And Peter says you were chosen to be obedient to Jesus, to submit yourself to him, to bend your knee to him and him alone. But the way that practically gets worked out through your life is when the Holy Spirit brings about his sanctifying work in you. And then notice the final thing that he says. If you move further back, the very first thing that he says after we were elect exiles, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here is what Peter's saying. That God chose you that you might be a resident alien. This isn't your home. You have a home in heaven. This, you don't embrace the values of this culture. You're not a tourist, and you're not a citizen. You're something else, something different, something between. Not just using the culture, but loving the culture. Not embracing everything in the culture because you stand out as a citizen of another culture. For obedience to Jesus Christ is brought about through the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in your life. But all, underneath all of this, he says... Underneath all of this is the eternal love of a father. Is the eternal love of a father. So when Peter says that we were elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, what does it mean to be known or foreknown by God? What does it mean to be foreknown by God? Now listen, there's other perspectives than the one I'm about to give you, but I'm going to give you mine. The way I understand this language is it shows up throughout the scriptures. And here it is. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, the closest reference to this foreknown language in Peter's mind. What's he thinking of whenever he uses that term foreknowledge? Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. He was foreknown. So what does this mean? Does this mean that God knew about Jesus before the foundations of the world? Does he mean, oh yeah, I've got this son over here. I know that he's there, Right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying something different and distinct. Of course he knew the son was there. Of course he knew his son was present before the foundations of the world. So how does he know his son differently than the way we might just intellectually know a truth or a fact? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he foreknew before time began, he knew them. How did he know them? 
Romans 11.2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And in the context of Romans 9 through 11, what Paul is teaching there is that God has indeed set his affection upon his people and all those that he set his affection upon he has not lost. Even though it looks like Israel has been rejected, there are some who are part of the true Israel, the true, the true line of Abraham's faith. And he says, those whom he foreknew, how did he know them beforehand? Amos 3.2, go back into the Old Testament. He says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, how is it that God can say, I only knew you, Israel. I didn't know the Hittites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites or any of the other peoples. How is it that God knew Israel differently than he knew the other rest of the families of the earth, the other nations of the earth? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and the text tells us that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. He knew her. What does that mean? You knew she was over there? I think she's over in the other room. No. It means that he gave himself to her, set his love upon her in the most intimate and personal of ways by going into her. And they conceived. She conceived and bore a son. See, the Bible doesn't just use that language of no in the sense of Like, I know this thing to be true, or I know this particular fact, or I have intellectual awareness of this. But it would seem that all the way from the beginning in Genesis, that when Adam knew his wife, he set his affection upon her. How did God know Israel differently than he knew all the families of the other, all the other families of the earth? He set his affection upon her, his love upon her. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we're told that he didn't choose Israel because she was mighty or had great multitudes, but because he had set his affection upon her. Those, God, those whom God foreknew, he set his affection upon. Those whom God predestined, he loved before the foundations of the world. Christ was in the bosom of the Father, loved by the Father from all the ages, foreknown by God. And so when Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God, this is how I understand him to be speaking. He says, you are elect exiles because from before the foundations of the world, God the Father set his love upon you. He loved you eternally. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, the love with which God loves is incomprehensible and immutable. It doesn't change, and you can't wrap your mind around it. For it was not from that time that we were reconciled unto him by the blood of his son that he began to love us. He did so before the foundation of the world that we might also be his sons along with his only begotten before as yet we had any existence of our own. He said, before you ever came into existence and before Jesus ever died for you in time and space in human history, God loved you and he set his affection upon you and he was moving towards you so that he sent his spirit to sanctify you, set you apart for him and him alone. And then he sent his son to live and die in your place to shed his blood that you might receive forgiveness of sins and be marked out as his covenant people and spend your knee to Jesus and Jesus alone. Spurgeon said it this way. And I love the way he says it. He says, before the first star was kindled, before the first living creature began to sing the praises of its creator, he loved his church with an everlasting love. He spied her in the glass of predestination, pictured her by his divine foreknowledge, and loved her with all his heart. 
And it was for this cause that he left his father and became one with her, that he might redeem her. It was for this cause that he went with her through all the veil of tears, discharged her debts, bore her sins in his body on the tree. For her sake, he slept in the tomb. And with the same love that brought him down, he has gone up again. With the same heart beating true to the same blessed betrothment, he has gone up into glory, waiting for the marriage day when he shall come again to receive his perfected spouse, who shall have been made herself ready by his grace. Never for a moment, whether as God over all, blessed forever, or as a man, or, or as God and man and one divine person, or as a dead and buried, or as risen and ascended, never has he changed in the love he bears to his chosen? Never. And so here's what this means. It means that all of our hyperbole in our sappy love songs, right? right you remember when you're like 16, you know, like beginning to feel all those kind of emotions towards someone, you write them this little love note, or you find a song, a poem, you copy, you paste it, and you send it over there. Of course, in our day, we didn't do that. We just kind of wrote it down. We didn't have copy and paste, okay? Uh, but these days, they do. I might Instagram somebody or Facebook message them, right? So you copy and paste, you send it over them, and it says stuff like, you know, all, higher than all the stars in the sky is my love for you. Deeper than all the oceans that have ever covered the face of the earth is my love and affection for you. Wider than the widest canyon on the face of the earth is my love for you. Before you were ever created, I loved you. Before I ever met you. I loved you. All of our hyperbole and our sappy love songs and poetry is reality for God. It's reality. And there are some, some of you who that truth concerns you. But I don't think the authors of Scripture ever intended to. I think they intended to comfort you. To comfort you. To give you a lasting sense of security and assurance. That is going to be necessary if you're going to come to terms with who you are. If you're going to embrace your identity. If you're going to live as an exile, chosen by God because he set his affection upon you, marked you out by his spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sent his son in time and space to to pay your debt and forgive your sin. You see, Jesus, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, Jesus was the ultimate exile who left his home in heaven and came down to earth, clothed, clothed in flesh. He came to his own, and his own what? Did not receive him. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is not his home. It was not his home, but he came here as the ultimate exile to give himself in your place. Because from before you are ever a twinkle in your mother or father's eye, God loved you and set his affection upon you. And I hope that brings you comfort.
And I hope that helps you come to terms with who you are so that no matter what happens in this life, you're able to rise up and say, glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. And because of that, it is indeed well with my soul. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word and its truths. We are thankful for your love that transcends time and space. That from before the foundations of the world, you chose us because you loved us. And you set us apart by the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit that we would be obedient to Jesus. God, I pray that those truths would give us great comfort in a time of uncertainty to know that no matter what any judge says or what any prefect says or what any ruler says or what any president or king on this earth says, that we have no greater king. And then no matter what happens to us here, it's okay, this is not our home. But we'd be absolutely secure filled with courage and compassion to live the most contrastive lives that at times will be offensive because we speak with courage and conviction and other times they will be attractive because people see the compassion and love. Father, would you comfort us with those truths and make our heart believe them. We pray in Jesus' name.